Hello, and welcome to Quovadis Institute's Rethink, a podcast that will supply you with thought-provoking approach to and reflection on some of the most challenging issues of our day. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Andrzej Turkanik, and I am the Executive Director of the Quovadis Institute. I'm pleased to welcome to our conversation two medical doctors who both are practitioners and scientists representing different medical disciplines, generations, and countries. Let me briefly introduce them to you. John Wyatt is Professor Emeritus of Neonatal Pediatrics, Ethics, and Perinatology at University College London and a senior researcher at the Faraday Institute in Cambridge. His background is as a clinician and researcher in applied neuroscience. Welcome, John. Hi, it's good to be here. And Quentin Jenis is a resident physician at the University of British Columbia. He holds a Master of Letters from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland with distinction and with research focus in bioethics. Welcome, Quentin. Thanks. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. This is the beginning of April, and uh, we're seeing something unprecedented around us. Um, Quentin, you are in Canada. John is in London. Quentin, you are on the forefront of this situation. Um, tell us what are you seeing? Yeah, just to provide a bit more context, I'm an emergency medicine resident in my final year of training here in Vancouver in Canada. And over the past eight or 10 weeks since the novel coronavirus situation has escalated, I've had the privilege and also the challenge of working in both intensive care and emergency medicine settings, uh, starting um, now, I think six weeks ago, when we had sort of one to two patients at a time in the hospital, um, to now where we're certainly um, having increasing uh, incidents and uh, where we're starting to see real on the ground concerns about um, limited resources and um, the uh, reaching the limits of the capacity of the healthcare system. Um, and certainly this has prompted a lot of thought um, on the challenges that individual physicians and healthcare practitioners face, but also the larger questions this poses for our society um, about human value and really difficult ethical questions um, surrounding use of limited resources. So those are some of the uh, questions that I've been faced with both practically, um, but also um, have been thinking about together with my colleagues over the past few weeks. Thank you, Quentin. So, John, from your perspective, how does this current crisis, um, what kind of challenges does this present to individual workers and to the health systems? Yes, it's an amazing situation. I'm in London and it feels like we're in the eye of a storm at the moment. Um, just over the last three weeks, there's been this exponential increase in um, admissions for intensive care. There's been a massive increase of resources. We've got a 4,000-bed field hospital set up uh, in East London. Um, and already uh, the tragic stories of, of death um, coming from uh, a number of doctors, nurses, and other people within the health profession. So this feels completely unprecedented to me. I mean, I've worked for more than 25 years as an intensivist, uh, particularly caring for newborn babies in central London. But um, I've never seen anything like this. And of course, actually, 
the last time there was a global pandemic like this. I think is nineteen nineteen. This is this is something that's hasn't happened for a hundred years, and so we're all of us, I think, uh, trying to work out how on earth to respond in, in an appropriate and responsible way in this kind of unprecedented challenge. Yeah, I think um, I think talking about individual challenges. I'm a big fan of Sir William Osler, who's a Canadian and also one of the fathers of clinical medicine. And one of the things he would say to his medical students is that um, in a physician, there's no quality that ranks as highly as what he called imperturbability, um, coolness and presence of mind under all circumstances and calmness amid the storm. And I think even part of the thing that drew me to emergency medicine, um, and I'm sure you to being intensivist is being part of critical care and um, really difficult and intense situations, but cultivating that skill set of um, imperturbability. But I think something like this gives or presents a challenge to all people working on the front lines, especially in critical care settings. The challenge is our sense of calm and coolness amidst the storm and raises the question of how we sustain faithful clinical practice when we ourselves face uncertainty and anxiety about the future. Yes. I, I mean, to be honest, I'm not totally convinced by this um, concept of imp- imperturbability um, because I can think of many times in my uh, career as an intensivist when because of sort of overwhelming tragedy and um, catastrophes of various kinds that um, – it just wasn't possible to have a kind of cool equanimity and even I don't think it's desirable. So, you know, I, th- I think perhaps the single most important thing, isn't it? As a physician is that we're also human beings and, and therefore practicing medicine with humanity. Um, and that means particularly in, in the emergency, in, in the context of the uh, very sophisticated technological uh, context of an intensive care unit still to retain that essential humanity uh, and and to be treating our patients uh, as uh, individual human beings like like it does seem to me that's an essential part of uh, a practicing as a vision and trying to remember that in the midst of this tsunami of um, uh, of challenges yeah I, I totally agree and perhaps I should have um, phrased that differently i I think that the I think what Osler was often trying to get at was imperturbability in terms of service to, to patients, in terms of being able to present information and make decisions. Um, but certainly outside of that, to have moments of, of vulnerability and grieving and, and lament. One really poignant scene in British Columbia, which is the province I live in, our chief medical officer, his name is Dr. Bonnie Henry, she early on um, in this crisis was giving daily updates as she often does um, on television and and she started to cry one day Um, and it really had a strong impact on a lot of people Um, someone who is sort of preaching the message of keep calm and carry on um, but herself showing how deeply it impacted her Um, I think one of the particular issues which seems to be recurring in the current context is the whole challenge of um, the necessity to keep quarantine to wear the PPE, personal protective equipment, and keeping relatives outside of the hospital 
this is a new challenge, I think, you know, which, which so goes against the humanity, um, you know, when it isn't possible to, to put an arm around, around someone, it isn't possible for the relatives to be there holding a hand, uh, at the, at this critical moment. Instead, we have this artificiality of layers of equipment and people being banished to the end of a phone. Uh, that you must be finding that really challenging. Yeah, it's been interesting. The past two weeks, I've been working mostly pediatric shifts, so seeing children. And I think it's most obvious in children, um, in terms of connecting to children and building trust and having them not scream and cry when you walk into the room, just you realize you being able to see their face and, um, you know, let them give you a high five and those kinds of things goes so far. Um, and so just, just ability to build rapport is, is so challenged, but I think that's obviously true for adults as well. Um, and makes it that much more difficult to maintain that sense of human connection. Another real challenge, um, I think that can promote moral distress, um, in healthcare providers is this, this sense of needing to take all this time to don PPE and prepare. And I've seen a number of instances where you have patients who are rushed in, put in a room who are critically ill, the kind of person who normally you'd sort of run in the room right away and do everything you can, but needing to take those few minutes to do all of the checks and put on all the PPE to get in there um, goes against so much of our moral instinct and all of the things that we've been trained to do. And I think that that can create, like, can compound our sense of um, of moral distress in contexts like this. Yeah, this concept of moral distress is a very uh, fascinating one. Uh, it's, it's only relatively recently been given this label, but it, it refers to uh, a deep sense of of moral conflict or unease or even trauma that health professionals feel. Um, and it's interesting to try and sort of unpick. I, th- I think that this is certainly one of the contexts where um, people have expressed this. Uh, a doctor friend of mine was saying that um, they'd had this situation where a, a patient had suddenly had a cardiac arrest and all the instincts were to just rush in there and start cardiac compressions and uh, ventilation and so on. Instead, they had to spend more than a minute sort of donning finding the equipment donning it all on making sure we were all tied in uh, before they were actually were able to get in and start the um, arrest procedures and as a result again this deep sense of distress and failure uh, were they being overly self-protective um, and so on this this uh, this balance between the desire to um, be there for the patient, do the best for the patient at the same time, not yourself become another victim. Yeah, and um, it's interesting, like the the moral injury language, we, we now say moral distress as well, initially came out of social science looking at soldiers and military personnel. And it's exactly that sense of dissonance between some some deep moral instinct or intuition on one hand, and then the things you feel a responsibility to do or are asked to do in the context of a professional or a particular role uh, in life. And the research says, as anyone would guess, that those feelings are compounded in situations where there's high stakes or where some kind of authority or perceived authority is involved. And I think 
being a physician in just the case you described ticked all of those boxes. Um, you, you feel a moral instinct to do something, even, even something heroic, um, to save a patient, even if that means increased risk of yourself. And yet there's also a professional responsibility to not expose yourself and put other people at risk and, you know, compound that whole problem. Um, but that certainly, and, and I feel that on a day-to-day basis, produces this dissonance um, that can be really unsettling. Um, and, and I think, you know, if one steps back a bit, it it, it partly just reflects, again, our, our human limitations, doesn't it? You know, that ideally we would always find a perfect solution, a way of, of, of acting that was both uh compassionate and responsible and professional and all the rest in reality uh faced with that kind of crisis it's often just not possible to find the ideal solution and i mean i think sometimes there's a deep sense of guilt and failure but certainly for me as a as a senior doctor i frequently saw this in junior doctors and felt that part of my role in uh, supporting mentoring and encouraging junior doctors was actually to help them see that their feelings of guilt and failure were actually unrealistic and um were not were not related to reality and therefore traumatizing yourself by some perceived failure I, I think that's something that tends to come with experience as a clinician is, is recognizing the limits of what you can do and therefore living with the limitations um, and the inadequacies of my own response. Yeah, and I think that one thing I've been thinking a lot about is the the notion that becomes crystal clear at a time like this of healthcare providers as public servants. and certainly part of the service that we do is putting ourselves in close proximity to be present to situations of tragedy and catastrophe and suffering and sorrow and and ultimately death. And being present to those situations involves certain kinds of suffering ourselves. Um, And as we've talked about a little bit off the air, I think we do have some very important choice to what what kind of suffering we experience and and how we choose to process that. But I do agree in situations like that, there's no no perfect solution. Uh, If you do rush into that room without taking the time to don your PPE, then you're putting other people at risk or you're taking yourself out of the game for a long period of time. And that certainly is a imperfect solution. Um, Yes, and I I think sometimes people have this ideal of a sort of cool, calm professionalism um which is uh is a mirage really i i i think and and in fact people who are who who sort of manage to give this impression of of a cool calm professionalism in the midst of terrible uh disasters and so on one often has the suspicion that they're not really engaged that they they've got some kind of detachment which which isn't uh, healthy, so um, I, I think finding this balance between an appropriate emotional engagement, while, without at the same time allowing it to become totally overwhelming, um, it, it certainly it's not easy. And certainly, if, you know, if I look back on my career, I think on many times I got that balance wrong. Um, um, 
And my tendency, I think, was probably to be over-involved, to find, to find myself to be so drawn into the emotion um, that, it, that it became almost overwhelming, that I, that I lost objectivity. Yeah, and I do think this connects to so many important questions that um, physicians are talking about, about all the time, whether we use the language of moral distress or compassion fatigue or burnout or, or those kinds of things, how we process these inherently difficult situations that we make ourselves present to day after day after day after day has really important implications to our own well-being, um, but also, also ultimately to the care of our patients. And I suspect, although I'm certainly, um, you know, a junior physician, that I, that I certainly I would probably err on a similar side to you um, in terms of getting more involved and, um, yeah, trying to feel very deeply in every situation and having to learn um, how, how to balance that. Uh, but, but I think this kind of a situation in crisis does present real acute challenges um, to, to people when they see this sort of tragedy um, building up around them. Very often one hears that uh, it is particularly young doctors who get drawn in now um, into a situation that perhaps they have not been um, experienced or exposed to uh, before. And uh, these are quite... Um, um, dramatic, massive uh, uh, changes in, in learning curve. What, uh, from your perspective as a junior doctor, Quentin, and from your experience as a senior uh, physician, what would be your words of encouragement and hope for those who are dropped in into this situation? One thing I've been thinking a lot about that um, will we'll come around sort of to an encouragement, um, this sort of connects to what we were talking about before, I've been thinking a lot about um, this line by T.S. Eliot um, in Little Gidding. And he says, we only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. Um, and I think Eliot was probably talking about something else. But I've sort of used that to think about the role of physician when we place ourselves in contexts like this is to expose ourselves to very real suffering um, that we will experience ourselves and trying to seek an outcome um, or a way to go about it where we don't feel sorrow or, or brokenness or suffering is, is as John was saying before, unrealistic. Um, but we do have a, a role to play um, in what kind of suffering we experience. And I really believe in the importance of vulnerability um, of appropriately lamenting for things that deserve sorrow, um, the suffering of what we might call burnout, of, of not, not grieving what deserves to be grieved, I think ultimately is a far greater suffering than the suffering of taking the time to feel the pain um, of the patients that we experience. And yeah, I had a I had an experience a couple of weeks ago with a patient, actually not a coronavirus patient, but another patient who was in the trauma bay of the emergency department who um, we tried to resuscitate for a long time, who then uh, who then died ultimately. 
And uh, in, in those situations, often there's someone who stays behind in the room while everyone else sort of goes on to the next thing, who cleans up the patient's uh, body so that when the family comes in, um, things look a bit more peaceful than oftentimes they do. And I asked if I could do that. Usually it's not a physician who does that, but I asked if I could. And I just took five or 10 minutes and um, covered the patient with a blanket and, and washed the patient's face and, and those kinds of things and allowed myself to feel the tragedy of a lost human life. And, and it's funny because I felt like that allowed me to cope so much better and over the next days provided me with a bit of a wellspring of, of hope. Um, taking a minute to feel vulnerable um, and even afraid. Um, I think so often we we want to sort of keep calm and carry on and just go on to the next thing. Um, but I guess my first world word of what I hope isn't cold comfort um, is an encouragement to take the time to grieve what deserves to be grieved. Um, and out of that grieving will come perseverance and out of that perseverance will come character and out of that character will come hope yeah well said um i certainly think that this is where physicians need to cultivate a deep inner resources um you know that you want the physician to be like an iceberg person that that what you see on the top in terms of their clinical work and uh, is only the superstructure of, of a, of a deep inner well of, of resource. Um, and uh, this is, this is the, the privilege, isn't it? Of, of, of working in this kind of area is, is we're exposed to the most extraordinary uh, episodes of, of life events, you know, being there to witness these ultimate um, experiences of birth and life and death tragedy triumph um and um uh, for me as working as an intensivist i realized that i needed every day to to develop my inner resources before i hit the intensive care unit uh, and as a christian it was a question of trying to orientate myself to pray um here in where I live in near central London, uh, I took the underground to uh, work every morning and there's a sort of eight minute walk to the underground station. And I tried to make it a kind of discipline that I would use those eight minutes of meditation and reflection uh, and preparation for, for the coming shift and, and particularly um, trying to get in the right space of, um, a sense of being there for others, of of, and, and from a Christian perspective, of trying to to both be Jesus to those I was reaching out to, but also to see Jesus, to be aware that that um, this was not just a technical activity that I was engaging in, but there was a deeper spiritual significance as well. Not, of course, not everybody has those kind of perspectives but for me it was certainly something that was really significant and important well thank you john and quentin for this engaging conversation and joining us from vancouver and london and thank you to our listeners for joining us for this session of the quo Vadis institute's podcast rethink and i trust you have been inspired and encouraged to do just that rethink 
please join us for the next installments of this podcast.